0: Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 76, with Charles Hunter III.
1: I think I realized that I wasn't cut out to be a lifer in a kitchen. I needed to be doing something else where I had more of a one-on-one experience with the people who were consuming the food versus cooking another chef's food and being a faceless body back in the kitchen. And I just, I don't know, I had so much creativity within me. And I was always like, at the restaurants I was working at, I was always like creating specials and, you know, helping with menu changes and things of that nature, but never really being able to see the fruits of those labors. Like when that item that I created landed on the table, it was just like another restaurant item from the restaurant. No one knows who's who's creating these things. And I kind of, I really hated that.
0: This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and, .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've never worked in a restaurant unless you count Burger King. And before I get into this week's episode, I want to let everyone know that the podcast will be on hiatus for the month of January 2021. I've put out 76 episodes now in the first season, and I'll be launching Season 2 on Tuesday, February 2nd. And you may have noticed that this episode was released on a Tuesday. When Season 2 starts, I'll continue to release the shows on Tuesdays going forward. In the meantime, I'm going to be doing a lot of Instagram live sessions. I'm going to be having conversations with previous guests and people who've never been on the show. You can find that over at Instagram.com forward slash Chefs Without Restaurants. And I encourage you to go back through our catalog and catch up on some of the episodes that you might have never heard before. This week, I have Chef Charles Hunter III. He's a personal chef, recipe developer, and food blogger based in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the owner of the Salted Table Company, an in-home catering company that prepares meals for backyard weddings, dinner parties, business dinners, and more in the comfort of your own home. Charles and I have similar backgrounds as it relates to blogging and the personal chef business, so I really wanted to ask him some questions about how he got started and how he runs his business. Some of the things we talk about are using social media as a tool for growing your business, being a chef who blogs, dinner party fiascos, and pricing your dinners. You can find Charles sharing his recipes and kitchen musings on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. He also has a Patreon where you can pay $6 a month for exclusive recipes, kitchen tips, and advice for all things culinary. You can find links to all of his social media platforms in the show notes. Unfortunately, during our recording, my Zoom completely froze up on me, and I had to reboot the computer. I lost about what would have been the last five minutes of the show. I usually like to ask my guests what one of their favorite culinary resources is, so I followed up with Charles asking him. And like many of our previous guests, he also lists the Flavor Bible as one of his very favorite culinary resources. I think I'm going to have to get Karen and Andrew on the show. What do you think? So enough of me talking. Let's get with the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Hey, good morning, Charles. Welcome to the show. Good
1: morning, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad I could get you on here. I've, I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit via Twitter the past couple months. Uh, I love seeing all the things you're working
1: on. Thanks. Yeah, Twitter is weird. I abandoned Twitter for quite a while. And then I don't know how I reignited my love for it again. I think once I finally figured out what people wanted, because at first I feel like I was putting a lot of word-based content into that space and just sharing like cooking information and articles from other food publications and things of that nature. But when I realized if I treated it more like Instagram, (laughs) that it was a little bit more fun and people were more engaging, um, my love for it kind of came back. So I've been back there over the past year or so. Finding the way to hack the system. Yeah, yeah. Because I did. I didn't know how to navigate it at all. I feel like I was like most people. It's like, oh well, I can swipe up and all this good stuff over on Instagram. I'll abandon all the other platforms, realizing, well, heck, if Instagram blows up tomorrow, where's where's the rest of my content going to go? How am I going to reach my my people, potential clients? Things of that nature. So I have really started reinvesting back into all the social media platforms a little bit more this year and trying to find the balance there. I don't think there is balance. It's just you just throw yourself into it or you don't do it.
0: Yeah, there's no balance at all. No, I I love Twitter. And I've mentioned it several times in this podcast. And what I did see is, it actually was good when a lot of people left, because then it was less noisy. Like I was on early, and then it got Mm -hmm. really noisy, and it got hard to get traction. But then a lot of people left for Instagram and other platforms. But what I noticed is a lot of the people who were influential in food media never left. And I kept telling people, like, if you want to get yourself in a publication or something like that. Like right now is the perfect time. All the editors of every magazine and TV show, they're still there.
1: Oh my gosh, you have so much access to people on Twitter. It is crazy the access you have to people on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I mean the first publication, I was in Garden and Gun magazine. It's like Jed Portman. I think every like Jed's become almost like a household name, in my opinion, now in the food mm-hmm. world. But he's someone who's been on Twitter for so long. And we just started interacting. And, you know, one time he saw some cocktail that I made on my blog and he said, This is great. Can we put this in the magazine? Yeah, like hell yeah, you can, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but but that was one of those things, like just that's the kind of th- opportunities I think you have when you're on a platform like Twitter, whereas, you know, maybe posting a photo of it on Instagram, but but I don't know. I think you really need to build those relationships and the depth you can get into on Twitter is a little different.
1: There's definitely um, a different kind of, I guess you could say intimacy on Twitter that you don't necessarily get from Instagram or even Facebook or any of the other platforms. It's just, there's like the ability to instantly connect. And it doesn't feel as awkward to like send people messages or to like to talk, to engage in conversation with people on Twitter versus sending someone having a stream of conversation in like an Instagram DM or something.
0: So I guess let's back it up a little bit. So you have a personal chef business, but I want to find out a little bit about how you got into food and cooking. Did you grow up being,
1: you know, r- falling in love with food? So Oh gosh, this could turn into an hour long story. I'll give the abbreviated version. Uh, <laughs> essentially, my, my parents worked, full time. So my sister and I ended up spending a decent amount of our childhood with my great grandmother and grandmother who lived in a duplex together. So it was kind of like the best of both worlds, kind of that old cliche story of being on the stool, helping grandma cook, uh, licking the spoon kind of a thing. And I feel like food just stuck. I was surrounded by a family who was always cooking. We were always having celebrations and get-togethers of some sort, whether it was on the weekends or I don't know. In the Black community, um, there's always a reason to have food and get people together and to eat. So I was always surrounded by food in some capacity. And my mom was always cooking, always in the kitchen with her Um, But really a lot of my inspiration for food, I feel like comes from my great grandmother and my grandmother just always being around them, always seeing them cook. Like we would literally get off the school bus, my sister and I, and she'd be out on the screen porch and there'd be just like a table full of like fish guts and she's just scaling away or someone dropped her off a deer carcass and she's like breaking it down or she's out there boiling turtles or just, I mean, I've seen it all from her wrangling the heads of chickens and popping off to I don't know, some traumatizing things for kids, <laughs> but still a really good experience.
0: My uncle in Minnesota was a hunter. And the first time that I went to visit them, I went in the kitchen and he had all these uh, rabbits with hooks through their neck, you know, and they were these snowshoe yes. shoe rabbits with the blood dripping down the front. Uh, but my mom said, you know, seeing that didn't traumatize me. And she kind of had a sense, I don't know, know that she knew I was going to be in food, but um, she definitely realized that like, I wasn't going to be squeamish with that kind of stuff.
1: We're either going to be chefs or serial killers after we see it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I don't know what else to do with it. Um, but no, so it was just, I was always surrounded by food. A lot of just beautiful, strong Black women always cooking, always in the kitchen with them, always trying to see what's in the pot and what they're doing and how they're using, utilizing these different ingredients to make really beautiful meals. And yeah, it just really stuck. But one of my first jobs was actually with my cousins who had a barbecue food truck before I even, I think even grasped the concept of what a food truck was or before they ever became popular. And I'd be jumping on it with them on the weekends and we'd be traveling to like these local festivals and local events. And they would let me help plan like menu specials and stuff like that. So, you know, slinging barbecue nachos and being able to watch who we my, um what well, we call him uncle Zeke. He's not a uncle, but he's a cousin, but, In the black community you call people things that they are like uncle and auntie um and just being able to really learn a lot about barbecuing and grilling and i don't know it was things that i really didn't i i probably at the time i took for granted i was like oh this is just fun (laughs) um but i really i really learned a lot through those experiences and then
0: you ended up going to culinary school correct
1: yeah, I followed that up with going to culinary school because what I what what I realized about myself is that I knew how to cook. I knew how to cook well just from watching all these people in my life do it, but I didn't really understand why food and ingredients work together the way they did to get the results that I was wanting. So culinary school gave me a solid foundation, I think, as far as like understanding the science of food and different flavor profiles and you know um, getting a larger grasp on all kinds of cultures and different cuisines and being able to understand outside of the bubble what I had known in
0: so then you did start working in food service out of culinary school correct like you started working yes, in restaurants yes i and- did
1: well start well i was working i don't think i worked for the first little bit of college but then I was like, oh, I need a job because I have some free time, <laughs> and I always love to work. I've always had my foot like doing something in restaurant related. I feel like even like since I was like probably like eleven or twelve. So yeah, I was in I was working in a kitchen in Gatlinburg while I was going to culinary school, thirty minutes away from there. Yeah, and that was just a, that was a really great learning experience. I eventually moved up to being an assistant kitchen manager while I was in culinary school, and. Then I was just like, I feel like I was really getting my, I don't know, ground. I guess you could say grounding um, and really learning more and understanding what it meant to work in an actual restaurant kitchen. Because like while I was in high school, I worked at like Panera Bread. So that was my first like real job with benefits and actual first footing in the door to the restaurant world, which I don't think was a a real experience.
0: I started at Burger King when I was sixteen. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a different experience, but it wasn't the same as like three hundred cover a night restaurant fine dining, like more brigade system kind of situation. So it was it was definitely interesting to be in culinary school and to be learning about what it meant to um, actually work in a restaurant and to go and do that at night. It was like it was like on training.
0: So now you have your own personal chef business. How did that start?
1: Oh gosh. So I was a prudish Christian kid growing up in East Tennessee and we literally spent our whole lives in the church like I just feel like I was at church like 3 to 4 days a week. So I didn't I didn't really understand a whole lot about like actual restaurant life. <laughs> kind of like um like, was a little bit dark and a little bit seedy, and I gained so much knowledge about things I never knew anything about. Um, working in restaurants, which was which was all very interesting. Granted, I still do miss it, but I realized—I think—I realized that I wasn't cut out to be a lifer in a kitchen. That I needed to be doing something else where I had more of a one-on-one experience with the people who were consuming the food versus cooking at another chef's food and being a faceless body back in the kitchen. And I just, I don't know, I had so much creativity within me. And I was always like at the restaurants I was working at, I was always like creating specials and, you know, helping with menu changes and things of that nature, but never really being able to see the fruits of those labors. Like when that item that I created landed on the table, it was just like another restaurant item from the restaurant. No one knows who's, who's creating these things. And I kind of, I really hated that. And I was like, uh, I want and then you say to the staff, did they, food. did they
0: like it? And they're just like, yeah, I guess, you know, like you want more feedback. Like you don't get to see the customer.
1: I'm like, with well, the place empty. So like, <laughs> I hope they liked it. But yeah, like you can't get any real feedback or anything. You know, like you're just continuously like cranking out all these, like what you think are like beautiful things. And I just wanted, I wanted more. I wanted more. I knew there was more. And granted, I spent years in the restaurant industry before I even got to this point. It wasn't until I moved to Nashville, and there was this like slow snowballing of people asking me to like cook for them, that I realized that there was a demographic of people who wanted this service and actually enjoyed it. And I had started the the food blog, and it was just it was just something I was doing. I was like, ah. Uh. I was a very, I was a late comer to Instagram. I was a late comer to all the social media platforms really. So I started this food blog where I was just like talking about my favorite restaurants and sharing really basic recipes. But I had already had an audience from that. And then when I realized that, oh, this personal chef thing could really like turn into something or blossom into something. um, I just kind of rolled it over. And changed the name and started doing research on like branding and marketing and trying to like figure out who I was and what my voice was and what my aesthetic was and who am I talking to who am I trying to reach all that all that just trying to figure out all the things you have to figure out I guess to be an entrepreneur
0: (laughs) what was the name of your blog when you started it was The Local
1: Forkful.
0: <laughs> so is your website the same? Did you leave all your old posts and just rebrand it? And I left the
1: old posts. Like if you dug in the archives, you could still find local Forkful um, content. And from even like interviews and stuff that I did, still referencing The Local Forkful. What year was this? When did you start? Oh my gosh. I This officially became a business in 2015. So it was like 2012-ish, probably when I started the local forkful.
0: I started my website, Perfect Little Bytes, I think in 2010. It's really hard to tell because the I was hosting it on Posterous and that like went out of business and I had to download all my posts and re-upload and and build my Mm. website on a WordPress. So I've kind of even lost track of like when my website was, but it was about 2010 when I started writing on my website. So similarly, I the website perfect little bites came before the personal chef business perfect little bites so how do you convert uh readers to customers cuz that's one of the challenge with something like a website you know it's not necessarily going to be hyper local you can have people from all over the world so how do you capture those customers how how are you getting people locally to find your website and then get them to be a personal chef customer
1: um so i think that came that came through a lot of networking i had to learn how to really just put myself out there, to sell myself, to talk about what it was I was doing. And I realized that I could no longer be the guy who was like, oh, yeah, I'm working here, but this is what I'm aspiring to be. I had to tell people I was a personal chef and this is what I'm doing to really get them to understand it, to believe in it, and to want to be a part of it. Um, so I started networking with like local um, event stylists and florist, um, event planners, like connecting with all these people and, uh, really doing some free, some free legwork. Um, so coming in and like um, creating the food for their photo shoots, um, are coming in and doing small events. They did pay, um, not a lot because I didn't realize my worst <laughs> back then. I was just excited to get the, I was excited to get the jobs, So it came through a lot of networking, a lot of just putting myself out there, putting my content out there, um, creating at home, um, playing around, learning about food photography, and then kind of like changing my voice from talking about the local restaurants and the recipes and stuff that I was doing to slowly rolling that over into talking to people about gathering together and how to be intentional about what it is that they're doing, and how to create, you know, that overused word of curation, um, but how to like curate like beautiful meals for people. So it was just like, it was kind of like, it was like learning the culinary industry from a different perspective and trying to figure out how I fit into it and what it looked like for me and my company. So you talk
0: about event planners and stylists and and things like that. For your dinners, do you deal with front of the house? Do you have someone who serves food? Do you deal with like tablescapes?
1: I take care of front and back of the house. We try to make it. We try to make it super simple for the client. I don't want them to have to deal with several people or I, like I want I, I essentially have created to where it all comes through me, and so we can take care of the tablescape. Um, we have. I have the front of the house staff. I have the back of the house staff. I've gotten to the point now to where I try to like cross turn those people into people that I can cross-utilize. So I've phased out slightly more people who just do one thing and kind of like source them in for people who can work or at least willing to learn how to do front and back because it makes life a lot easier and you have that. Then you have less people to actually worry about.
0: So do you do you look for a front of the house person to teach back of the house, or do you look for a back of the house person that you teach front?
1: A back of the house that I can teach front, because the thing was going in – you know this. Like the thing was going in people's homes, it's like it's really it's kind of strange and bizarre how this works because you have to earn people's trust without them ever meeting you. A lot of times, like a lot of like you have your your clients who understand it now, only you cook for on a regular basis and do things for. And they get it. But like the new clients, you have to get them to understand exactly how this works. So you have to earn their trust through an email.
0: <laughs> Most of my customers I've never even spoken to on the phone. We can do it all via email. And then I show up. Yeah. And I'm, meeting, I'm meeting them for the very first time. I haven't even seen their face until I get there.
1: Same here. Because um, now I to kind of like streamline it when we're in like a busy season, um, gosh, which hasn't been a whole lot since COVID, but when we're in a busy season, I've streamlined it to where I'm like, hey, it takes me images of the dining room and the kitchen and the spaces that we're going to utilize so I can plan the flow of the evening. I used to do home visits, and then it would just it was get, it becoming too much. There was too many moving parts between doing home business and grocery shopping and wrangling and staff and doing all these things and going to buy flowers. Um, so we've I've definitely streamlined the service. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because you have to get people to trust you as a complete stranger and also bringing other strangers into their home. So going back
0: to the blog, do people still ever refer to you as a blogger? And if so, how does that make you feel? Because personally, I, I'm a chef first. And when people refer mm-hmm. to me as a blogger, I get kind of I don't know, like a weird feeling about that.
1: I don't know. I've learned, I feel like I've learned to do kind of this like disassociation or like detachment from... Um, titles I always consider I consider myself a chef but I consider myself a chef who blogs um I haven't gotten to a place where I even feel comfortable with even calling myself a food writer because I've done very little of it but I really do enjoy it and it's something that I plan to like navigate the waters more next year but when people call me a blogger I don't I don't I don't even really think twice about it I think there may have been a point early on when I was um rolling over Into the personal chef, where I was like, I'm not a blogger anymore. But now I'm like, yeah, I'm a chef who blogs.
0: (laughs) Because I always, in my head, you know, when blogging started, I just picture this kind of like. Stay-at-home mom who has way too much time and spends eight hours crafting like mm-hmm. one entree, and it's like, no, I'm a chef. I've been cooking in kitchens since 1992. Like, because I have friends, even chef friends, who'll introduce me and be like, "This is Chris from the blog Perfect Little Bites." I'm like, and the business, like, you know, <laughs> I I actually no. cook. I make money off of cooking. You know,
1: <laughs> no, it, and I feel like I've finally got people to people have the very be into now. So they usually introduce me as a chef who blogs, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't care that much about it. And the blog still, the blog still exists whenever I can get around to it. I've invested way more time into Patreon now, but the blog still exists and I'll still put content there. Well, that's,
0: you know, one of the things is how much time, how do you allocate your time? You know, is the question I'm always asking myself. Like, where is the best ROI? Is it better to just put a bunch of recipes or a bunch of photos on Instagram as opposed to crafting this one blog post? Blogging takes so much more time for me. And it's easier for me to just mm-hmm. qu- take a picture of whatever I'm working on, post on Instagram, and be done with it.
1: Yeah. See, the thing, well, the thing I love about the website and the blog is um, I want it to be a place where, like, my kids can go and kind of see like what I did and see all the content and kind of like be inspired by it. And also it's just, it's continually building something that I can reference. I can reference later or like send links out to other people. Um, I don't know. There's something about, I like having that kind of like tangible content just always kind of present there in the background, even though I spend a lot more time on social media than I do the website these days, but I still, I still love it. I still love spending like three hours creating a three to four hours, creating a recipe, taking pictures of it, and then trying to like squeeze some words out of my brain (laughs) into the, into that space and seeing and seeing that come into fruition. So it's still fun. Well, and who
0: who is your target customer? Uh, Do you have a handle on what the demographic is?
1: Gosh, so majority of my audience is women.
0: Um, Who's who's your demographic for paying customers, for your personal chef, I guess is what I want to get at.
1: Yeah, because they're very different, or they can be very different. So my paying customers are between the ages of 45 and 60 is majority majority of our clients. A lot of empty nesters and a lot of, like, CEO type people who entertain a lot, who do a lot of business dinners and things of that, things of that nature.
0: And I I ask this because I think that's where you kind of get the, you know, with social media, you know, it's like, I do a lot of posting on Instagram where the demographic definitely skews younger and, you know, you get a lot of likes, you get a lot of followers, but is that doing anything to move the needle in a business sense? When I look at most of my customers are these, you know, like, A 55 to 60 year old person, they've probably never even seen my Instagram. And I would say that Mm -hmm. 95% of the people who follow me have never hired me, you know, and I think this is one of the things that I keep talking about with other people is where are you spending your time? And if you want to grow your business, does it make sense to spend so much time on a platform where your customers aren't even there right now?
1: Oh, yeah, I actually do believe the weird thing with I was shocked at how much business I was getting from Instagram. A lot of business comes through Instagram, which is why I really started like investing into that platform more than all the others, because it was where I got the most messages about doing dinners and the most messages about cooking classes and people who were just really interested in what it was I was doing. And it was way easier to connect with people in there and to share information and, Um, To really just get your name out there a lot more, but I get a lot of business through Instagram. So I'm always telling people who want to be personal chefs to definitely invest into that platform, as well as a couple of the others, because you can definitely find the people who want to utilize your services there beyond the people who are just looking for free content and just come like your stuff because it's pretty or whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, most of my customers tell me they find me through a Google search. So thank God I'm doing something right for SEO, that they're literally just putting like personal chef Washington, D.C. into Google and finding yeah. me.
1: No, I get a lot of those people who threw the together. Like they, we put in personal chef Nashville. You were one of the first people that popped up. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love That's
0: good. that. So what do you wish you knew earlier on about being a personal chef or starting the business? Like what... If you could go back and just like say, man, I wish I knew this, what would that be?
1: One, I should have started out with an accountant <laughs> because I was not that great at um, numbers. It is still something I struggle with, but definitely having an accountant helps you become more it and frees you up um, to do other things besides always crunching numbers and working on the books. So definitely starting out with an accountant. Um understanding more of i don't know how i I guess how to work with people um because you run into so many different personality types that i've never dealt with before so i sometimes it's a learning curve do you mean customers yeah yeah with customers because sometimes it's a learning curve to understand what, what it is that people want from you and what they need so i wish i could have had a mentor. Because I didn't know any other personal chefs. It was something that I just saw on TV. And I was like, people don't do that for a career. That's not a real thing. (laughs) Until I was actually doing it. And then I was like, oh, hey, wait, what am I doing? How do I do this? How do I figure this out? Um, So it just came from, I had to do a lot of research. So I would definitely tell people to like, start out with an accountant, do a lot of research on it. And try to find somebody, even if if it's not, if you can't find them in person, find them on the internet and like see if they don't mind answering some questions for you because it's definitely, it's a different ball game. And it's a totally different experience from working in a restaurant. Like they're almost, they're, they're comparable, but also incomparable in the way that they're formatted.
0: Yeah, I tell a lot of people, you definitely have to be an entertainer, right? You know, like oh, you're coming yeah. in people's houses. I don't think a lot of chefs are used to that. If you've only been in restaurants where you're behind the closed kitchen doors doing your thing, you know, it's if you've worked in a um a, an open kitchen a little bit, but still mm-hmm. when you're in an open kitchen, you don't necessarily have as much interaction directly with a customer. I mean, we're front and center quite often talking to yeah. multiple people while we're cooking.
1: Yeah, because they're just they're just wandering around your space. Um, you really can't you can't hide from them, especially since a lot of homes nowadays are built open concepts. So there's no there's no cutoff. You kind of have to be on at all times, and you have to present well. There are some people who I've worked with before in kitchens or like I come across, and they're like, oh, I want to be a personal chef. I'm like, uh, I don't know if you actually want to be a personal chef. <laughs> <laughs> Because you have to, you you definitely you have to present well. Like you have, I don't know, like you have to, you have to learn to really be a people person if you're not a people person. And when I when I know people who aren't people, who aren't people persons, you know, I only I take you. You have that.
0: to go with the flow really easily. You know, yeah, you never yeah. Know like you, you for a loop. Like for you never me, know
1: what's gonna happen.
0: I, I love animals, but I hate when people have, like, those dogs and they, like, don't have the common sense to get them out of your space. And, like, I'm working and there's, like, a dog at my feet the whole time and I'm tripping and they're, like, getting into my stuff. And you just want to turn around and say, get that dog the fuck out of here. <laughs> and You know, you
1: can't do that. I've put that in the contract now that if you have active animals, we have to have you put them away for the course of the event because it's too, it's too distracting. And if I'm turning around with a hot skillet of something and your dog comes running through the kitchen, that's the problem and the liability. And no one wants to deal with that. And I learned that the hard way. I think the first, the first year of like, Oh wow, I didn't think about the aspect of dealing with people's animals in my space. So now I need to figure out how to like nicely tell them to put them away. So now we ask them, I, I, it's like front and center now. It's like, uh, oh, do you have animals, by the way? Well, here's how that needs to work for us.
0: Yeah, something for me to put into my policies, I think, for the new year
1: going forward. Same thing with kids too. Like you have, it's so weird how you have to kind of like you have to become the authoritarian. In a I'm gonna need
0: you stuff. to lock up your kids before
1: uh, before we do a dinner. Well, it's <laughs> like I need you to definitely keep an eye on your kids. Like you can't. I'm sorry, the three year old can't run around while. Now that we're here, like we've got to figure something like what time is the nanny coming because we got to figure something else out.
0: <laughs> but those are those are the things that you don't know until you get there, right?
1: Cuz I definitely can't be a chef and a babysitter at the same hour.
0: <laughs> no, not not at all. It does get really interesting. Are there any things that you make in your customers homes that you will make for food but are really a pain like what are some of those dishes that people love or just you get there and you're like why did i even agree to make this do you have any of those dishes that come to
1: mind you know what in the beginning of being a personal chef i was trying to like you know be fireworks show and like get ooze and wows all the time And I've really tailored that back because I started thinking about the experience as a whole and how to like streamline the things that we were doing how to make it more palatable experience for the staff and the clients without losing any of that wow factor. So I started to simplify my recipes. So I stopped doing things that took like 18 ingredients for one dish because it was killing me. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there too. Yeah. And then like, also like try to get like, when you, cause when you have a lot of stuff to do, you can't do it all at the client's home. So like trying to get like rental kitchen space and trying to like figure all that out. It was, it wasn't adding up and it wasn't worth it. And I couldn't roll that cost over to my clients. Um, So I started simplifying things um, without really losing any of that elevated feel, so now I don't do any, I, we don't do any super complicated dishes. I mean, hearing egg yolks, um, smoking something are probably as, as complicated as it gets, but I don't do any of those dishes that take like two to three days pre-prep. <laughs>
0: Well, I would say just, like, frying anything. Like, this last weekend, these people wanted a Spanish party, and I made croquetas de jamón. But, like, you're going to someone's house, and they had a glass cooktop stove, and I've got this giant pot of vegetable oil on there. And I'm there by myself. It was only a party of six. But then you're trying to watch all these things. So I've got this stuff in the oven. I'm trying to make sure that the oil is at the right temperature. But then you're done and you have this hot pot full of oil that I've got to like put in my car and get home. It's like, I really hate frying. Like, I love fried food. But like doing that offsite at some stranger's house where I have to cart hot
1: oil home is a mess. I don't put fried food on my menu. I purposefully do not put fried food on the menu. You have to actually, if we're finding food at your house, it's because you've requested something that wasn't present on my menu, and now I have to figure it out.
0: That's what That's what this was for me, because I don't usually do it either, but they wanted a traditional Spanish tapas dinner. It's like, well, there's really, I mean, yeah. for me, that's one of the top like three things oh, yeah, you definitely. have at a Spanish restaurant. I have to do it, but I hated it.
1: Yeah, because like trying to figure out what to do with oil, like you said, is like an awkward situation. And it's just, it's laborious and it feels wasteful because like you're not going to use it again, probably more than likely. So I, if we do anything fried, it's like a garnish or it's like a pan fry where there's like a cup of oil or so used at most. But yeah, I try, I really try not to deep fry anything. Like we did last, I feel like the last time we did something, we did bengays. So it was like two big pans of oil that I had to figure out what to do with. So I'm just like waiting for it to cool. Pouring it back into the containers, wrapping it up, loading it back. And forth. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes real laborious. Have you ever seen the baking
0: steels? Do you know the baking steels? It's like a 40-pound piece of steel that you can put in the oven. It's really good for making pizza. So I had customers... Uh, who would ask for like pizza parties. So that was something I did early on. And I would bring this thing, not thinking about the fact that this basically gets up to the equivalent of like 900 degrees. And now I have to take this thing home. So I have it on this giant sheet pan. So one time I'm at a customer's house and I'm carrying it and the sheet pan slid and it fell off and went on their floor. So this... 40 pound piece of steel is like 900 pounds it's in their like breezeway with their laminate floor. I don't know what kind of magical flooring they had that it did not melt or even show a, like a sign, but I'm freaking out and I'm getting like spatulas trying to like lift this thing up. I burned the crap out of my hands and I'm like, I'm never doing this again. I'm not making pizza at people's houses. No, with
1: I do. I do not volunteer pizza parties and I, 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 shun them unless you have a pizza oven in your backyard. Are it, it has to make sense. I don't try to figure it out in the oven anymore. I've done that a couple of times, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> you have to have an actual piece of oven because it's not, I'm like, just the logistics of this and like all the toppings, and then people want to make their own and customize. I'm just like, no, no, thank you.
0: I did a party it was 10 10-year-old girls it was a girl's 10-year-old birthday party and she invited nine other friends and they wanted to learn how to make pizza and that was a hot mess it, like the adults didn't mm-hmm. even help at all all the parents stayed at the party and they had a, a glass of wine and stood in the back while I'm at the island and these girls are just like yes. slinging sauce everywhere and yes. i was like I I, a, like I, I, I just don't do party. kids Kids' birthday parties I've decided are not
1: my thing, and I'm just not. I did a do pasta them. party for some for some eleven year olds, and I was like, "Yeah, I won't be advertising for this." sorry <laughs> it was definitely it was definitely a learning experience, but trying to wrangle in like six year old girls to make pasta is is work.
0: And I think it's hard if it's you know, for one of your existing customers, because that's how it always happens. I do a dinner for these adults and it's a dinner party and now they feel like family and we're friends and they say, hey, it's my daughter's birthday party. We'd love for you to come and and do this. I feel like that's something that I easily cave into and say, sure, I'll do mm-hmm. it. But now I just have to say, you know, I really thank you for thinking of me. I just don't think it's going to be a good fit.
1: Yeah, it's like you want to be accommodating to your to your regular clients, especially Especially because a lot of them is so weird. Sometimes I'm like, a lot of my regular clients have become like friends, you know, like I almost consider them family. Yeah, but sometimes you do have to like, you have to set those boundaries. <laughs> because sometimes it's just like, ah, no, I don't. Mm.
0: Yeah. you yeah. But I think that's another thing that came over time is knowing my strengths and my weaknesses and what I was good at and what I like doing. Because I think when you're starting out and you need the money – you're willing to take a lot more things
1: oh, you and do it's just like anything
0: absolutely. And then at some point you're like no that's not that's not what I want to be doing.
1: No, yeah once you once you figure it out it it gets a lot it gets a lot easier to kind of navigate this world <laughs> um, and to like better understand who you are as a chef as well. So what did you learn
0: about pricing your product and charging for your time? I'm sure like many personal chefs, that was a struggle in trying to figure out what to charge. I couldn't
1: find, you know, it's hard. There's not a whole lot of information on it out there. And the information that is out there is kind of like vague. And, oh, you need to do like, um, you need to do all these math equations and figure out your food costs and things of that nature. And it was like, no, I'm trying to provide, like, an upscale experience. But what does that look like? What does charging for food look like separate from, like, because I was trying to roll it all together in the beginning. I don't know how you started out, but I was trying to do, like, the per person cost, and that was it. Like, that, um, and, you know, you just walk out the gratuity, and you walk out of the door. And that wasn't working for me, because I realized when people started wanting to do, like, appetizers and they want to do a salad and the entree and then dessert and, or, and sometimes they wanted to throw an amuse-bouche and all this stuff um that $60 a person wasn't covering all those groceries not at all <laughs> so I had I had to I had to step back and I think I fumbled through this whole thing for the first year I was just you know just continually tripping over myself trying to figure it out and trying to do research and trying to, like, change menus. And, like, it was just push and pull with clients because my menu prices were changing as I was trying to figure it out. And, you know, I'm so glad a lot of them were willing to just, like, work through it with me because it was a lot of learning. It was a lot of learning. So finally when I realized, like, okay, this is – I should I need to create menus. I'm going to do seasonal menus with the prices for the food a la carte and then I'm gonna charge a service fee for me, for staffing, and then for rentals. So I started to create these layers and compartmentalize, and it was clear to the customer what they were what they were getting and what they were looking at. Um, versus this kind of ambiguous sixty dollars a person, have a field day kind of a thing is what it felt like. So does pricing
0: fluctuate based on menus? Like do you have different prices for different dishes?
1: Yeah. Prices for different dishes, because the thing I still try to do is source quality ingredients from different places. So if I can get this from the farmer's market, I'm going to charge more for it because it costs more versus if I go get it from fresh market or Whole Foods. So I still have to take into account just all the little things that come along with it.
0: I don't do any of that at all. I have a flat pricing that's always been... Well, it hasn't always been this price, but my pricing, I just say, starts at $100 a person and goes up from there. And if you want a filet mignon or a crab cake or a tofu or a pork tenderloin, it's all $100 a person. I don't get into this like, um, you know, because you'll have a party where – You've got like one vegetarian and six meat eaters and six people have filet. I don't want to get into it like, well, it's $50 for the filet, but then it's like $25 for the tofu. It's like, no, it's $100 across the board or 125 across the board. And then that gives me a margin of error. You know, I have very low overhead. I hire no staff except when I do more than 10 people, I'll bring on one person. But under 10, I do it all myself and I have no rentals. Um, so I don't deal with any of that. And so at that price point, it's like, that gives me a lot of leeway to do a lot of different stuff. Um, but I found that getting a number out of my client was helpful because that's how I found I was undercharging. When I started, I was like, Oh, it's Uh 65 or 75. Now I have a questionnaire and I say, what is your budget? And some people are like, well, is $150 a person good? And I'm like, yep. Some people are like, what can you do for $200 a person? I'm like, you have $200 a person to spend? Like, I, I didn't even think that was something people would want to yeah. drop because I found that I would say like, oh, it's, you know, 85 and like, great, sold. You know, I'm like, that was a little too quick. Maybe I, sh- I should raise my prices.
1: Yeah, no. Oh, I actually found that I, made, I was making better money with the menu pricing versus having flat fee just because... I wanted to really – I was trying to really um, do the thing where I kind of was like supporting local and being able to get the products that I wanted to cook with and that I wanted to see people enjoy and eat. I don't know. I did the the flat fee thing, and I feel like the menu pricing now is making more sense for me because they can see how much it costs for the chicken dish. Um, And then I also have in the notes, well – Because what I I try to get my clients to do is everybody's going to eat the same thing.
0: Me too. Except you have like a weird diet. Like if you're a vegan. dietary
1: restriction or allergy, then yeah, we definitely accommodate that. So I I created a section on the menu for those people. And then if there's like three people in the party who just happen to be gluten-free, my menu can cater to that now. I'm like, oh, that's people get really stressed out about it. I'm like, oh, that's not a big deal. Gluten-free is not as hard as people think it is. So I feel like the individual pricing of like the menu items and doing the seasonality and that whole thing is working better for me now than doing the flat fee, because I've, I've built in, I've built in a little bit extra to have some wiggle room to get these nicer ingredients. Um, And if I have to navigate some dietary or allergy restrictions, like I feel like it's all built in there now and it's really comfortable to move around.
0: Well, that's great that you found a system that works. I mean, as long as you have something that works, so many people are still trying to figure it out. Um, Oh, yeah. I, I know one of the hard things for me is like when you have a recurring customer, like, did you ever have to like, frankly, say to someone like, I know I used to charge this, but this is what I charge now. Have you, did you have to deal with that when you raised prices?
1: I had a small group of clients I had to do that with. I was like, look, as time has gone on and I've realized how much energy and time that this takes to create this product and deliver it to you and for you to be happy with the final results, we're going to do a price increase come January or whatever of the following year. And, and, and they usually, no one usually ever has an issue with it because they're like, hey, we love what you do, Charles, and we love the product and we love what you provide for us. So like none of them have issues with it. And then the newer clients don't even know. So most of the time, it's pretty much a flawless process, I think, at this point.
0: Now, have you picked up meal prep customers as
1: well? I have. And that was part of the pivot of lovely COVID, um, just because people people aren't having a whole lot of in-home stuff. like It's kind of like a weird place to be right now. So yeah, I did pick up some meal prep clients, and then I pivoted to also doing some drop-off meals for people that you see I offer on the internet from time to time, which has been fun. I, I'm not, a, I respect delivery people so much more now <laughs> after yeah. seeing how that operates. I'm like, man, dropping food off to like eight people's houses is exhausting.
0: <laughs> not something I'm built for. I, I have zero. No,
1: no, I'm like this is a lot of work. I'm like this is a lot of work. And it's also going to be one of those things to like where we're after we're like over this heel of explaining to those people who now want to utilize my services why that pricing worked for that and not for what it is that I do full time as a career. Because a lot of people are going to blur those lines and not see what exactly was happening.
0: And that's one of the reasons I never did it. I didn't pivot at all during COVID. I have stuck to my guns of Perfect Little Bites has been branded as an in-home dining experience where I set the table and I cook everything there. And because I'm in the $100 a person price range, how do I then come out and say like, oh, well, but now, you know, for $30 a head, you can get this meal delivered. Like, I really was... Intentional about my branding from the start and Mm -hmm. maybe it's being stubborn, but I just didn't want to start to get into that and
1: No, I get that that. I I think the the pivoting to meal delivery was more like a internal freak out of like, oh my gosh I have 20 meal prep clients Who have left town? And don't know when they're coming back (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and they haven't come back since March they like, they have, they have to figure out a way to fly lease to safely. It was a company of executives and they have to find a way to safely fly 20 people back into town who need meal prep again. Oh,
0: so you had like a big company you were working with and you had a Oh lot-
1: yeah. I had an- I, I had a whole nother company separate from the in-home dining experience that we were doing meal prep for. And I had a team and that and COVID took all that away. So it was like, oh my gosh like a big chunk of my income just literally flew out the window i have to figure something <laughs> but
0: you are doing in-home out. dinners right now correct
1: yeah we are doing that we are doing them occasionally and still doing the meal drop-offs as well i imagine
0: december's been down for you number wise from what uh it's been in past years
1: oh yeah my wife is like man usually november and december you're like non-stop and i never see you and that has not been the case this year i'm like hi i'm here <laughs> that's, that's why I've gone
0: all in on the podcasting right now, because I have the time to do it like December and, and November. I'm usually like, I can't come up for oxygen, you know, oh, it's now, crazy now up it's like, Christmas, oh, and then like
1: uh, two days after Christmas. Yeah, like, it never stops. And this year it's been, like, weird. I'm like, oh, my gosh, my hands are fidgety. Like, okay.
0: (laughs) Well, I've been doing a lot of smaller parties, which is fun, but it's more work. You know, when you look Mm -hmm. at, like, profitability, like, I'd rather go out on a Saturday and cook for 10 people than work five days a week for two people. Like, that just doesn't make sense because of economy of scale, you know. But you do what you have to do. So I've been going out doing a lot of twos, fours, and sixes lately.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely has... Um, smaller, smaller groups is the same this year. But gosh, I do miss the big groups because <laughs> that was that was that was where the money really is.
0: So, when things start to get back to normal, do you have any big plans? Any changes to the company?
1: So, I plan to not be knocked on my butt again like this uh, <laughs> from a pandemic I never saw coming. So right now, I feel like I'm, I'm, a crea- I'm a creative almost to my detriment sometimes. Um, I like to do a lot of things. I'm a passionate chef first, but I also love writing and I love creating and I love doing these things. So I'm going to definitely invest a lot more energy into Patreon over the next year. Um, because it's really been a fun platform to connect with people and to give people that one-on-one that they want for, like, recipe creation and cooking in their kitchen. And then I also think I'm going to look into, like, doing more virtual cooking classes because I keep getting emails about that and dabbling more into food writing, like, trying to, like, navigate my way through those waters. I have such imposter syndrome. Um <laughs> when I think about doing that, but I'm also really passionate about writing and I, I, I love creating in that format. So I don't want to limit myself from being able to do anything, but I have a lot of these just like small projects that I want to get off the ground, but I need to find a way to streamline it and make it make sense for the brand and try to find a way to relate it to our audience in a way that they understand it.
0: I see you putting out a lot of content. I seem <clears throat> to see you online all the time. And and even if it's just an idea, I think that's the thing that's, you know, sometimes it's not even like a fully formed recipe. It's just like a, a snippet of something you're working on. It just seems like you're just putting out a ton of ideas and photos and recipes and it seems like, wow.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing I'm always creating. Like I, people are always like, do you ever get tired of cooking? I'm like, uh, I might get, tired but that doesn't mean I'm gonna stop <laughs> you know it's kind of like I can be exhausted but I can still get in the kitchen and like bake something or whip something up just because like it's my it's my cheap therapy it's where I have fun Is I enjoy being in the kitchen and it's never been and in this format that I do it now where it's a lot more creative than it is like I don't know how to describe it, but like labor, I guess like when you're like in a kitchen, it's like, you're just sledging away in the heat and the dark space with the fluorescent lights, cranking all these big things of food out, but it's not like that in your home kitchen or when you're cooking for someone else. So I enjoy, I enjoy creating in this format.
0: I feel like you almost even have more of the mental space to think about being creative when you're doing this. Like when I'm at home cooking, I'm definitely more thoughtful, uh, you know, and, and things connect the dots a little better. So like the Spanish dinner last week, I made brava sauce for patatas bravas. And like in the moment there, you know, I'm just making them and they're just potatoes. But then I had some leftovers I brought home and I was eating it. And I said, what if this was a tomato soup? You know, and I even posted that online. Like, this sauce is like the best tomato sauce I ever had. What if you pureed it and just hit it with a little cream and did like a cream of tomato, but with that as the base for it? And then maybe do like a manchego cheese toast, you know? But when I'm cooking at these people's house, like that doesn't hit me like that. It's when I get to slow down and I'm at home and I'm tasting this, I'm like, wow, this is like the best tasting tomato sauce I've ever made. Like, what could this be a good base for? But when you're just grinding away, putting out that dinner... I don't really get those moments at that time.
1: No, and I love repurposing. I make some of my best. I feel like I make some of the best meals for my wife and myself when I'm repurposing something that's been left over from another meal. I don't know. It's like if you don't, you don't want to see food go to waste. I feel like you get like a little bit of extra oomph in you to create something delicious. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm very frugal, and that's something when I was working in other kitchens that I was running, I was always challenging my staff to, like, what are you throwing in the trash? Like, how can we use that? My uh, One of my signature dishes is a scrapple dip. Do you know scrapple? Do you ever eat scrapple?
1: Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, interesting. When you said dip, I was like, wait, what? So, so take
0: take your favorite <laughs> uh, crab dip and just replace ounce for ounce scrapple for crab. So it's like pan-seared scrapple with cream cheese, cheddar cheese, Old Bay, hot sauce, Maybe it sounds disgusting. I love it. Uh, no,
1: no, not if you're familiar with Scrapple and you like it.
0: But it was one of those things. I worked at a place and we did breakfast. And one day a week we did Scrapple. And um, my cooks always said they didn't have to- enough time to cook it from scratch. So they would like go ahead and cook like a whole bunch of it. And after every Monday morning's breakfast service, they'd have like half a hotel pan. And they would just throw it in the trash. And at one point, I just said, save that. And they're like, why? I'm like, because this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be throwing this away. We're going to do something with it. And I-, I don't even remember the spark. Like Maybe we we're making crab dip for a fun. Or something, I was like, what if I just like use scrapple instead of crab? Like I didn't do it for that function, but just like tinkering Mm -hmm. in the kitchen. And that's how that was born. And then just like looking at that again, it's like, well, what if we did dirty rice? Like dirty rice is usually organ meat. It's usually like chicken livers. What if we didn't use chicken livers? What if we use scrapple and made like a super awesome like dirty rice and just threw some crispy scrapple on top? And you know, that was just because I was tired of throwing away, you know, a pound of it every Monday.
1: Yeah. I mean, you just got my wheels turned out. I was like, what if you smoke that scrapple to make the, the dip? That's so good. Ooh, next, <laughs> next stage. Next stage for sure. Right. Um, but no, I have, and the thing about me, is like, I, I see sometimes like, I don't know, some people like subtweet me or whatever. And they're like, I don't know how you have time to take pictures when you're in the kitchen. I'm like, I have time to take pictures when I'm in the kitchen because I make time to take pictures when I'm in the kitchen. I've planned, I've, and also, if you don't have the content, a lot of people times people don't feel comfortable because they don't know what they're paying for. I mean, if I want you to invest into me, if I want you to enjoy the product that I create, then I feel like you need to be able to see it. You need to be able to visualize it. So I I am very intentional about trying to capture what it is that I'm creating. And I can't get a picture of every meal at every every event or even everything that I do in my own house because sometimes you just need to eat. But I'm very intentional about um, trying to collect those visuals and to be able to share that with um, people on the internet who will become potential for our potential clients.
0: More often than not, I'm doing a photo shoot the day after with leftovers because I don't have anyone working with me. You know, it's really hard. You go to yeah, someone's it looks house. Yeah, it different for you And, there, and there's me like, when I have staff. Yeah, I have no staff. There's eight people I'm cooking for. And, like, nobody wants you stopping plating their food to take pictures. Plus, you know, it's night. Their lighting is garbage or whatever. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I've got, like, a little bowl. I've got, like two tablespoons of chimichurri sauce left. Like, I'm going to take that home with me. I, I have, you know, this and that. And then the next day it's like, can I put together a dish with just with the leftovers? Like, it's always nice if I have enough just to make one plate and then I can set up my lights and get my good plates and, and all that and, and do a photo shoot. But more often than not, it's like food that I just managed to save from the day before.
1: And then I've gotten good to where now, like my, my staff has <laughs> learned to just grab my phone and take pictures of food if I'm busy or something like it just it just kind of seamlessly works in it's not something that we have to like stop and figure out you know we're still moving we're still making sure this like experience is legit and all the i's are being dotted and the t's are being crossed but it's just taking that quick moment if you have it to like get an image and move on you know we're not we're not stopping to break out a ring light or anything which I think people (laughs) think sometimes I'm like no it's not a We're not full on photo shoot at anyone's home.
0: Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.